Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 10. Heathers. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and you can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the initial DVD release of Heathers from 1998, which syncs nicely with all the DVD versions released up to 2008, and the current version on Netflix, not the Blu-ray. If you press play on the DVD or Netflix now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. This is the only bubblegum 80s movie that we're doing, and it's our last one of this decade. I believe in decades as a system, though it does not work as a finite time era. Heathers is one of those films that did not do very well when it came out. The production company that made it made another film before filing bankruptcy. People looked at the language of the film and its subject matter, teen suicide, and they said, yeah... No thanks. The only people who seemed interested in watching Heathers were teenagers like me. And we watched it a lot. Behold the Red Scrunchie. The title is over it for a reason. Kind of like a crown. This is the power of Grayskull, people. Whoever holds the spice holds the universe. And so it is with the Red Scrunchie of Westerberg High School. Think of it as the modern-day version of the scepter you know, the one that Zur uses in The Last Starfighter. Pay attention to the colors. We'll get to that in a minute. They step onto roses, not just because they can, but because anything not as beautiful as they are has no right to exist. Que sera, sera, or whatever will be, will be was first published in 1956 by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. The song was chosen for the Alfred Hitchcock film The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day, which premiered that year. The song hit number two in America and number one in the UK. From 1968 to 1973, it was the theme song of the Doris Day show and became synonymous with her image. The song won the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1957, the third Oscar Livingston Evans would earn. In 2008, the AFI chose it as number 48 in its top 100 songs of the past 100 years of cinema. Heather drops her book because learning is scorned in this clique. You don't need to be smart, you only need to be popular and beautiful. So we are starting this movie with known Hitchcock tunes, which starts it in a sinister way. Like the first film, you hear these heavenly voices and you think, wow, that's beautiful, but what are they saying? It's the 20th century equivalent of the bullshit hashtag phrase everyone uses now. 
it is what it is. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. What does it mean? It means don't bother. You can't do anything. Just let it go. Veronica's head brings up several different issues. First, have the Heathers buried her just to hit her? If so, they're obviously sadomasochists, which surprises no one. Secondly, just seeing her head makes us focus on her, not the rest of her body, which is normally what Hollywood is all about. So that idea is rejected in that shot. Or you can focus on Veronica's lipstick and just fantasize, and that's not out of the norm because this movie relies heavily on fantasy, given that it uses soft lenses and Doris Day music. The Heathers are going to use Veronica's head to score instead of a hoop, or in America it is called wicket, and hitting her head signifies a bunch of different things. The Heathers are sadists, they like inflicting pain, they're snobs, they think they're better than everyone else, and even in this flick they, they think they're better than each other. They are masochists, as they prefer to play with Veronica's severed head, and they are sexual in a sinister way, putting their blue croquet balls into Veronica's face. They are not feminists. This is the 80s, so shoulder pads are in for women. This is a repeat of the late 1940s and early 50s. But here it goes into overdrive. Veronica has soft shoulder pads that curve down, but Heather's looks like they are on steroids. She looks like a blonde Joan Crawford from Mildred Pierce. The point, if you will, of the shoulder pads is to create the woman form into a V, which starts at her head and ends at her vagina. This is emphasized by Heather's brooch, which looks like a golden flower, representing her vulva. Heather Chandler makes Heather Duke bend over despite being in the cafeteria full of tables because she is showing that she is the alpha male of the group. Glowingly feminine, but completely in control and used to violating other women who are obviously beneath her. Heather Duke looks uncertain as if she were bending over in front of a man for the first time. The shot cuts to the football players, Peter and Rodney, and their hyper-masculine talk, uh, particularly with Rom and Kurt, equate what Heather is doing to what they're talking about, which is sex with Heather. In this way, the Heathers are no different than the Jocks. Now we can go into why are the Heathers, particularly Heather Chandler, so male in their attitudes, personality, etc. We can say this is self-preservation, that Heather is this way so that men don't take advantage of her, but we see later at the frat party that that's not true. We could also say this is societal reinforcement and go on and on. To oppose this group of mean cliques who create mean-spirited lies in the form of a letter just for a laugh, we have a slightly gay-looking boy trying to convince a cafeteria full of rich white kids to spend a little bit of money, not on the cardigan at the Limited, but on starving black kids in Africa. But that's not what these kids do, especially the Heathers who are all business. Just look at them in those fabulous businesses. The poor kids, meaning JD, kind of, and a black kid that he's sitting with are in the far dark corner of the cafeteria which is where minorities and poor people are in the mind of the popular and the rich. Never there, always pushed away, always othered. We were previously tipped off that Veronica does not belong in this group, not because of her hair, which is only a shade darker than Heather Dukes, but by her dress and her demeanor of resistance. So this begs the question, how in the hell did Veronica get into this club? We know she is rich, we know she is smart, too smart actually, and we find out later she is gifted. She has other friends, all with glasses, that she does not 
talk to anymore because that is not what Heathers do. We can see with her wit and her sharp acumen how Heather Chandler found her, but why does Heather put up with her constant bitching? Talking back at Heather Chandler is tolerated only because she doesn't want weak-winged followers. If you can't push back, you can't get walked on, and she doesn't want someone like that in her group. The popped collar, even in the 80s, was a sure sign of elitism and douchebaggery. The only reason why Heather wastes her time with dicks like this is because outwitting them makes her even more popular. The only way to be better than the rich is to be smarter than the rich. And Veronica's V here is pronounced because of her jacket making her more desirable as she is amazed at the arrogance of the snobbering of Heather's associates. You must know by now that Heather doesn't have friends, only people she associates with. Friends are for losers, as she proved to Veronica earlier. Again, the dark corner, the lunchtime poll where Heather devises is, is only because she wants to laugh at what the mundane and the stupid have in the form of an answer to what she thinks is a rather obvious, if arcane, question. Who gives a shit what people do if they win Ed McMahon sweepstakes? Certainly not her. The letter to Martha Dumstock is hateful and cruel, and not outside the realm of reality. When I was in high school, I received a letter from a similar person as Martha, with expressions similar to the letter Veronica forged here. I come to find out several classmates were playing a trick on this poor underclass woman and on me as well. I did not act as these douchebags did, but I wish that I had acted better. Here you get a cross-section of Westerberg's population. The Richie Riches, the Headbangers, the Readers, the Jocks, the Stoners, the Nerds. And to prove that they all have something to prove, we are going to put something to prove on a kid's shirt here so that you don't miss it. Even those who want to do something good with the money that they have something to prove. They want to feel good about themselves by showing to others what a good person they are. The only people without something to prove are the stoners, and we know what they would spend that money on. So in this upcoming shot, there's four girls with only three doors in the background. If three had to leave, which one do you think would get left behind? My money's on Veronica. We understand what the other Heathers are doing in this clique. They are so like each other that they're hard to tell apart. But again, what is Veronica doing here? Her name is different. Her style is different. Even when you take into account that she's a brunette, just like Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, as I'm sure you knew. As we will come to find out, she's not a virgin like the others, and we infer that despite not having a sexual hang-up. She would prefer not giving a blowjob to just any guy to attain status like the other Heathers. We will pontificate sex in this film later, during the game of strip croquet. Behind Veronica, you see the Westerberg feeds the world poster, but all you can see is Westerberg is the world, which is true to these very myopic teens that can only see their world in the terms of their high school and their bedroom, which are two locations Heather spends the most of its screen time in. 
bulimia is a real disorder that plagued real teenagers. And you can see how it would affect teenagers who are not just obsessed with their image, but use this image to gain social status. In the end, we see the leftover food that Heather didn't eat and which the world will not receive from Westerberg High. Some people have asked me about the Daily Pool. Very few people ever mention it or write about it. Many people think that Veronica only participated that day and wanted to ask that question because she only wanted JD's answer. That could be true. My own opinion is rather darker. How are you going to distinguish yourself against other people unless you ask them questions? So in a sense, you are othering with this poll. Yes, Heather is taking the temp. It is a litmus test of who is popular and who is not. But who are you not asking to participate in the poll says just as much as who you are asking to participate. It's like that literary digest poll that declared, I think it was Dewey over Truman to be the winner. It was a phone poll. Well, most people didn't have phones back then, so they never got the phone call to answer the poll. They were never asked. That's why it was a big upset. Veronica's pointing this out, and Heather doesn't like it, but Veronica likes it because she gets to know a little bit more about Jason Dean. J.D. dresses like the Columbine murderers. Brad Pitt was considered for the role of J.D., but was considered too nice. Drew Barrymore supposedly auditioned for the part of Heather Chandler. Jennifer Connelly was offered the role of Veronica, but turned it down. Justine Bateman was considered also, but passed over. And Winona Ryder, who wanted the role badly and fought for it, got the role. Heather Graham was offered the role of Heather Chandler, but she was 17 at the time and her parents turned it down. I guess they didn't want her simulating fellatio as a minor. Ryder was also 16 at the time Heather's was shot in December of 1988, and we'll explore her career a little later. The W on the jacket is truncated there so it looks like two V's because these guys are just a couple of pussies. JD is the guy with the huge cock and he proves it when he pulls out a four and a quarter inch Smith which even in the state of Texas in 1988 would have put a minor in jail. However, I don't want to comment on something too hard to explain to many people who didn't grow up in rural or suburban Texas in the 80s but it was not uncommon for me to go to high school and see gun racks in the back of a truck, in the school parking lot, a student's truck, and I never thought anything about it until I became a teacher myself. We'll get back to JD in a bit, but let's talk about croquet. Croquet is a backyard sport in which you score points by hitting balls through hoops planted in the grass. It is an English aristocratic game that is played differently in America. The balls are always played in the same sequence, blue, red, black, yellow, and a ball that is dead is carried from turn to turn until it is cleared by scoring in a future round. A ball out of bounds causes a turn to end. We will see the leadership of the Westerberg ruling clique follow these rules. Blue, red, black, yellow. So Heather Chandler is played by Kim Walker and she is the leader of the pack. Her power is contained in the Red Scrunchie, a scepter that a queen would wield while on the throne. She is therefore the Red Croquet Ball. Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, is the Blue Ball, 
and for several reasons, she's the only Heather in the film we know isn't having sex, so she's blue-balling guys. She is constantly wearing blue in the film until she briefly takes the red scrunchie, and she is in the first to get knocked out of the Crow game here. She does put on red in the final scene. Veronica is black based on her dress and proto-gothic appearance. Remember, this is just on the heels of Beetlejuice. She matches JD, which we will get to later. Heather McNamara is played by Lizanne Falk, and her image is obviously associated with the remaining color, yellow. So who gets knocked out of the game in order? Blue in the game, red by Drano, black by ostracism, yellow by attempted suicide, because yellow is the color for cowards. Veronica, like a lot of 16-year-olds in the 1980s, keeps a diary, and I've always lamented a film that uses a narrator because I think it serves to say the film is not invented enough to show you what is really going on. Instead, Veronica says intimate things into the diary that we could not know otherwise and allows the film to center on her as the main protagonist instead of every other film in the world on a guy. JD is not the main idea here. He is also not the good guy. The snappy snack chat is a metaphor for a quickie. The fact that Heather sends Veronica into the snappy snack chat tells us that Veronica is ready for sex and Heather is not. But it is Veronica, the sexually experienced one, who turns down sex because she knows the consequences, versus Heather, who gets into a degrading situation because she wants to be popular. Veronica is popular, not because she is cool, but because she is smart, and this is why Heather hates her. And I'm sure you've put it together now, she hates everyone for a different reason, but the one thing that strings all those reasons together is that particular thing Heather hates is better than her. Duke has book smarts, McNamara has beauty, Veronica has street smarts. People think she's wearing a flower on her shirt, the symbol of virginity, but I see an owl here, an animal of wisdom. Her breasts are pronounced in this dress, but they are covered. She does not have to show them off to get what she wants. And what does she want from JD? At this stage, only respect. And he's giving it to her, something he would never give ahead of. The Twizzler was a limp phallic symbol as she was making fun of him, but then she starts sucking on a rigid straw. The corn nuts are another mode of control. She has his nuts firmly in her hand, and she knows that she can do anything she wants with it. JD uses the cigarette to firmly reject the Twizzler insult and confirm exactly what he wants, sucked the straw. All this phallic play, and even later when Veronica puts a beer between her breasts, all of this emphasizes real masculinity, which is focused around genuine attraction and love and rejects fake masculinity, which you find in Kurt and Ram, for instance. This is real love. He is genuinely in love with her. There are, as you no doubt have noticed by now tons of gay jokes in Heathers and many of them are not funny drag queen kind of gay jokes a lot of them are hate speech like Kurt and Ram constantly saying fag, faggot, calling people fags describing how other people like to suck big dicks we know now that we're entering hell at the frat party because everything has gone red for Veronica this is an uncomfortable situation but she has something that Heather does not have the power of no to Heather, to whom social climbing is the point of existence, this is truly hell to whore herself out for an up level. 
She does not understand that becoming a slut does not make you popular or pointless. Always love the monocle there. She looks like she should be writing poetry about flowers at a Starbucks instead of divulging your teenage life. This douchebag tries to imagine he's not obsessed with status by saying he's glad he doesn't have to ask Veronica what a major is, but then shows that he's exactly the douchebag by asking her what she would like to study. Heather wears the harlot red dress in the fraternity kingdom of hell and reinforces her trip down to Satan by literally going down on this guy. The picture of the famous TDK ag in which a guy gets blown away by a set of very expensive speakers is above, and this is fitting because the college douchebag is a really expensive whore. Heather's not a whore, but she might act like one. She's a victim, and she knows it, and that's why she's angry at Veronica when Veronica's not put out like she does. Now, Veronica tests her pain level to see how drunk she is and how her judgment is, and again is measuring that to see exactly what level of Dante's hell she's in. This is confirmed by the fire. Beer glass, circle one. Two trash cans, two circles. A glass of water, one circle. The ring on her finger, another circle. We're counting the circles of hell, and to prove that the douchebag will return later. Keep this in mind, folks. If Veronica's a junior... She could be 16. We know for a fact that Winona Ryder was 16. So if this guy is in the first year of college, he could be 20. Now, four years is not that far apart, but when I was 20, the last thing I wanted to do was have a conversation with a 16-year-old. So this is predatory. Whether either of them recognize it or not is beside the point. It is more than against the law. It is physical, if not mental, deeply psychological rape. And it says a lot that Veronica is more traumatized by being nearly taken advantage of then Heather, who was clearly taken advantage of, her consent does not matter when she is in that environment. And she is still being exploited, and the fact that she knows she is being exploited also does not matter. It is still wrong. Blue hair clip. Crushing image. The circling fire of hell. Now when they exit the party, you'll see the beer go full flame. And why is the beer on fire? It's not on fire because Veronica put a match in it. It's on fire because someone, probably that douchebag asshole, roofied her drink, and the drug in her drink is what caught fire. This is why she's burning herself, because she thought she had been drugged. We know that she's been drugged, when she pukes in the hallway, knocking her down the social ladder right in front of Heather, who sees puking corn nuts up far worse than spitting up cum. Remember, Heather is a prude, so she will never, ever swallow. She'll run to the bathroom through a crowd of people to spit out the semen. Veronica will swallow, but only for love, and this lines up with the true masculine and fake masculine dichotomy that you see run through the film on several different levels. So the fire represents Veronica's intended rape, and as it rages, we see Heather in her full glory. Veronica knows Heather degraded herself, and Heather knows Veronica did not. And somehow, in that fucked up world, that means that Veronica is less than a person than Heather is. Heather proves this when she says, no one at Westerberg will play your reindeer games. Camera pullback. Boom. And as if to prove my point, JD arrives on cue for a game of strip croquet. 
Veronica is caught here between her books on her right shoulder and the window, the escape with JD on her left shoulder. The wishing well tells us they both got what they wished for, consensual sex. Notice the blue balls around the croquet stick and contemplate what this means for the two of them on the social ladder. She's dating down, he's dating up, swatch dogs and diet coke heads versus the scooter trash. This is also going to outline more real and fake masculinity. Veronica is going to test JD's masculinity by biting his breast. And very quickly, we are going to move from a revenge plot to an accidental suicide, or so we think. And to do that, we need to get into the mind of JD, our hero initially, but very quickly, even before the forest, we are going to see he is an anti-hero, and then just a plain psycho. This gradual change in JD is for two reasons. First, Veronica would have nothing to do with him if she knew that he was a psycho, and we know this. But secondly... Perhaps J.D. does not know what a psycho he really is until he experiences life at Westerberg, even with a weirdo like his dad. Weirdos are not made overnight. Psychos take a lot of training to become psychos. Hitler did not all of a sudden wake up one day and get out of his bed and say, Wow, how wonderful it is that I am so evil. Evil takes a lot of work to get to. People who suffer psychotic episodes or who slowly become obsessed with an issue until it takes over their every mode of thinking, like Jews or immigrants or Obamacare. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes decades. Sometimes it just takes one election cycle. You know he's a little off in just mentioning the Drano, and you know that he's She's not that far gone when she rejects the idea of killing her. JD obviously needs severe psychological help. He dresses like one of the Columbine killers. Like I said before, he brags about getting rid of uppity rich types. He reminds me a lot of Jake Busey and Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Busey plays a serial killer who takes his girlfriend into the hospital where they massacre a bunch of people and they brag about Richard Starkweather. Richard Starkweather was a real serial killer who went on a spree with his girlfriend, Carol Fugate, in January 1958 and killed 10 people in Nebraska and then one later in Wyoming. Busey actually says in The Frighteners that he's killed one more than Starkweather, and J.D. is all about the body count in this movie, thus the bombs, which Eric Harris and Klebold used in the Columbine Massacre. In a journal, Klebold actually wrote one of the goals of the Columbine killings to exceed the death count of the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people, including six kids in the daycare on the first floor and three pregnant women. Not to get off on a tangent here, but Timothy McVeigh, who set off the bomb, said that he didn't know that there was a daycare right there and where he parked the truck bomb, and if he had known, he might have given him cause to change his mind. What do you think about J.D.? Do you think that he might change his mind if his victims were younger? McVeigh was anti-government. The Columbine killers were anti-everything. With the exception of McVeigh, all of these killers, including J.D., are living in a terribly normal suburban environment. 
Veronica and JD are still in love when they mix their dangerous poison in the kitchen, which is decorated like St. Valentine's Day. Heather wakes up as if from a womb or a sun, as if she is the center of everything, and she still has her red scrunchie to prove it. She removes her red scrunchie, thus removing her protection of power given to her by the sun. JD and Veronica use Heather's warped sense of social self to get her to drink the poison, which she does because she could not possibly believe that they would actually poison her. At worst, it's a roofie. Heather admits that she has made a mistake, the only time in a film when she does so, when she says corn nuts right before she dies. She is admitting that she doesn't have any symbolic cojones, and she shatters an image of herself in the coffee table, which had a magazine with Winona Ryder's picture on the cover, proving who really is the social winner of this situation. A magazine called Info that suggests Heather missed the 411 in teenager slang. And my favorite little detail, a Cliff Notes book that probably could have gotten her out of this mess if only she understood literary allegories and Greek drama ideas such as hubris and revenge. The coffee table legs are reversed as not to form a circle. So it's desecrated or an interrupted womb or sun, the opposite of creation, what you could describe as destruction. Where does Veronica immediately go to sit down? The vanity, where she immediately pontificates that her future involves not an admission process to Stanford, the elite Northern College, but San Quentin, a different type of elite institution. This is fitting because JD is wearing all black like Johnny Cash, who famously played San Quentin, and let's face it, he belongs there, versus Veronica, who's all business in her vest, Stanford ready, the windows are decked with vertical stripes that mimic the bars they face in the future. Topped with a bow, as if what JD figures out here, the suicide note, is a present to them, a chance to get their lives back. The Cliff Notes book, if you didn't catch it, was the On the Bell Jar by the poet Sylvia Plath. It's her only novel. Plath was concerned about the autobiographical aspects of the novel and so published it under a pseudonym in 1963. The book is quite famous because it was the first widely read book that documented the experience of someone battling a mental illness and it parallels Plath's own experiences with what may have been clinical depression. Supposedly she suffered from this most of her adult life before she died by suicide a month after the book's UK publication. The Bell Jar tackles a variety of women's issues, including the fear of the consequences of unprotected sex, how women are saddled with pregnancy in a quest for intimacy, the extended consequences of, of, of course, marrying the wrong man, which could destroy a woman's life back then. It dealt with suicide attempts, both half-hearted ones and full ones, and described the feeling of being trapped under a bell jar, from which the novel gets its name. 
And of course, it's the Cliff Notes because Heather would never actually take the time to read a real book. J.D. is looking at the evidence, the fashion magazines, the bell jar, the glass coffee table that had her image, and he gets an idea. Most people see Heather's murder as a plan that J.D. has had all along, but though he is reckless and clearly wants to see Heather suffer, I don't think that this is the original goal. He comes up with a plan to explain it after the fact, not before. This murder is not premeditated, but it does change J.D. from someone who covers up to someone who plans ahead, and then to someone who is decidedly carefree. You can see his descent from carelessness to sociopathic to psychopathic. You can see him lose his sympathy and his empathy for other human beings. The principal of Westerberg has a halo over his head, but to think of him as a saint is sacrilegious. Simply by his age, this film condemns him as out of touch and not able to connect with the dreaded issue of teenage suicide. The teachers who know Heather see something suspicious in her suicide, but they can't put their finger on it. The school counselor, always labeled as a 60s hippie in the 80s films, annoys her older conservative colleagues with her ideas of love and support. The statue on her shoulder is meant to convey her white angel, advising her to do good deeds, and of course she has no red devil to counterbalance the dialogue on the other shoulder, as all hippies are immune to having a discourse. I've always thought the Westerberg High School logo looks a lot like a rifle scope sight. Heather Duke has a light above her head because she has become enlightened. The most telling and instant change since Heather Chandler's suicide is Heather Duke's bulimia subsiding. It is almost as if she is instantly cured, and we are misled if we think this is a positive effect that was worth first-degree manslaughter. We also see instant negative effects. Heather McNamara starts parceling out Heather Chandler's socio-status swatches as if she owns them while condemning Veronica's fashion sense at the same time. And a fellow student, who most would agree was the larger suicide risk, concludes they are all airhead bitches, not just the uppity rich types. The shower is Veronica's re-baptism, or baptism if her nice, conservative, rich Christian parents have not already baptized her, which seems unlikely. After the shower, Veronica changes in her personality as she takes a separate proverbial fork in the road than what JD has taken. To emphasize Veronica's change as she is sitting in front of a butterfly painted on the wall behind her, the creature most often associated with physical transformation. And we can see that it is the start of her cocooning process. In case you didn't know, Winona Ryder was born to Jewish parents and changed her name from Horowitz, like many do in Hollywood, to seem more verbally aesthetic. Ryder was previously in Beetlejuice, which got her a lot of notice, and the producers thought they saw a kind of Natalie Wood quality about her for this role, a kind of rebel without a cause matchup. Slater was being a warped version of James Dean. Nice mullet. Death is a funny thing for something that happens so often. One of the weird things I've noticed about it is when someone dies, especially if 
they were deemed too young or not ready or whatever. You see people attach themselves to that person in a weird way. People who didn't run in the same circles or even perhaps had ill feelings towards the deceased suddenly say things as they always admire that person, etc. I've never really understood this. I've seen it at funerals where people show up that I know hated the deceased. I've also seen people liken themselves to the deceased finding things in common. Heather's documents this and it exploits this feeling. These people who say that they feel sorry for Heather Chandler really don't. What they want is to be seen as someone who knew or cared about her, and in that way, Heather's popularity extends to him or her. So there's so much going on in Heather's, it's unreal. If you look at the fireplace, which looks like an altar with these golden snakes on each side, and on it sits what? The television, which we all worship. You notice the clock behind Veronica's head that reads 2 p.m., so they must have skipped out early to have sex. In the foreground is an obelisk on the table, an obvious phallic symbol in front of JD, who is holding a remote control over his crotch. Despite hating rich popular types, JD's family seems to be well off, even if his dad has to constantly exercise to keep healthy. And where is his mom? You'll hear about that later. The dark side of masculinity is rearing its ugly head, like a snake. And we'll see other altars later. Christian Slater was a child actor in Hollywood. He worked pretty steady from the age of 11 and had a breakout role when he played Helen Slater's brother in The Legend of Billie Jean. The following year, he played Sean Connery's understudy in the film version of Umberto Eco's masterful medieval murder mystery, The Name of the Rose. In 1988, well, that was a big year for him. He started by playing Jeff Bridges' son in Francis Ford Coppola's Tucker, The Man in His Dream. He shot Heathers that summer, which was released in 1989, and then Gleaming the Cube came out, where he carries his own with Stephen Bauer as a skater who tries to find out why his adopted Vietnamese brother was murdered. After that, he explodes. Young Guns 2, Pump Up the Volume, which is an amazing movie, quickly followed by the piece of shit that is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Cuffs, Untamed Heart, True Romance, Murder in the First. The 90s had a good run for him. Veronica calls her father an idiot, it's kind of a joke, but then later she calls herself one under different circumstances, and we see that is what she has said in the croquet match, but it's the truth. She is gifted, supposedly, but uses her brains to do mindless consumer things to be popular, and she doesn't even know why. The church scene is filled with all kinds of shit. First, the priest's name is Father Ripper, called to Jack D. Ripper from Dr. Strangelove, and that'll come up later. And he is masterfully played by the talented Glenn Shaddix. Priests are not supposed to be gay, and Shaddix was openly gay for most of his life. And he turns up the sacrilegious flamboyance here for dark glass. In the opening shot of the church, he's standing behind a small cherub with his hands on the cherub's shoulders as if he's violating it. 
Heather Chandler's mom is the only person who sheds any real tears here. The rest are crocodile tears, look at me tears. Veronica is wearing blue instead of black with some kind of fez on her head. The only person other than Father Ripper who exhibits any religious dress. Prayers at the deceased's side are reserved for asking God why he killed such hot snatch, where some people want to go to college, and other shallow concerns teenagers have for their future, unconcerned really that Heather no longer has one of her own. Heather Dukes is the most evil as we find out she has been secretly praying for Heather's death and is happier than J.D. that she is gone. J.D. should have dated her. The only altruistic prayer was Veronica's, and she is concerned that it wasn't. The roses are a blood-red reminder of murder. Heather McNamara is dipping her hands in the holy water to make sure her hair looks all right. The vestibule they are in looks more like a castle dungeon where you would spend time for your crimes than it does as a place to purify souls. Look at Heather's miniskirt and see if she is dressed appropriately for a funeral. Then look at Veronica's Jackie O getup and see if it matters at all. Now we are going to be bombarded by the hyper-masculinity of Kurt and Ram, a German name and a name of intention. This film underlines overt masculinity as a cover for weakness and possibly as sexual frustration or compensation for not being man enough, meaning not being a genuine person who could genuinely love, or even worse, you could be a closet homosexual who gave ashes because you use it to hide your real identity. This reminds me of a film called The Believer, in which a Jew was hiding his identity among white supremacists. With Christ the Judge watching, we see Kurt and Ram physically abuse someone because he is weaker than they are and, after taking solace that they are better because they are seniors, have no problem gay bashing by asking a school geek if he likes to suck big dicks. Before you judge them too harshly for saying the word fag too much, remember the word is thrown around a lot in this film, including by cops who are later investigating Kurt and Ram's murder. Spoilers. Also ask yourself the next time that you meet someone who is gay, what would Jesus do? Would it be the same as Kurt and Ram? Or do you secretly want to do what JD is thinking? And we know he is thinking something as he rides by Kurt and Ram on his motorcycle penis. Everyone is now so depressed they decide to go cow tipping which is only one step above sheep-fucking on the how-unsophisticated redneck am I quiz. Heather knows that she's made a mistake, and if you think the cow mud hitting the girls in the face is an ejaculation joke, you would be right. One, two, three. The two boys are drunk and Veronica bails immediately, practically leaving Heather to be date-raped. But hey, she asked for it, right? Just by showing up? Or doesn't everyone want to get laid after a funeral in a pile of shit? I'm sure it makes you feel more alive. JD arrives out of the forest like some magical creature out of a Midsummer Night's Dream, or perhaps he is a minotaur on his modern mode of masculine transportation. 
or perhaps he's been stalking Veronica. He admits the same problem that he fights, which is that he feels superior to other people, then apologizes and tells Veronica it's all the same wherever he goes. JD is the new kid in town, a kind of fucked up footloose, only instead of landing in a town that bans music, he's landed in an exact opposite town as before, the one that bans non-conformity. The picket fence, I'm sure, tipped you off to all of that. Anyone who has spent time in a journalism class putting together a newspaper or yearbook can appreciate this scene, complete with the rumor mill that Veronica not only sucked off Ram, but sucked off Kurt at the same time. I'm surprised this conversation didn't take place in the dark room, in between the stop bath acid and the developer pans. Wasn't raping Heather enough? Did you have to go overboard on your lie? And if you're going to lie like that, why not just say it was a split roast or a double pin? Even better, double pin and a badge, because there's nothing more gay than two dicks sharing the same vagina at the same time. Now that is big fun, two signs you see all over this room. Doesn't this all look familiar? It looks like the common room in the library of Glendale College, or even better, the library at the breakfast club where you spend every Saturday. This looks suspiciously like Pretty in Pink with the hat or some kind of wonderful. Heather's goes over some very familiar territory, and the best way that I can describe it is that it turns these John Hughes movies on their head. Now, if you watch John Hughes movies on the surface, you will see a lot of thin white kids doing thin white things in thin white suburbs, and everything looks like Pleasantville and the suburbs of Chicago, etc., etc. I understand what people say when they see that, and I, I just disagree with it. I don't think John Hughes was a racist man. In fact, if you watch any documentaries about him, you'll see that he was a highly liberal man. But being a white director and a white screenwriter in a white industry, he was color-biased, just like anybody else, and just like the producers of this film. But when you look at Heathers, you're going to see that the whiteness is a caricature. It's like a commentary, a sarcasm, if you will. It's a comment, especially when Christian Slater shows up, and he is whiter than a ghost. And he makes jokes about Ohio being homophobic. So that parlays into the image. This is 1988 and 1989, and we have to keep the world of Heathers in perspective. The Cold War is still going on, but detente and the summits with the Soviets have dramatically toned down the conflict with the communists. By 1988, many of the economic difficulties faced in the 1970s were alleviated. There was a national sense of perhaps we can live with the Soviets, and not kill each other. When you have this environment, you become more introspective. You start to look at many problems in your own society, and in this case, we're looking at the trivial. Trivial, upper-class problems, what Heather Chandler called reindeer games. And spy novels, and why we smoke when we know it's not good for us. Who the fuck has time for croquet? Rich people do that's who. K Sarah Sarah. So we talk about pate. JD tells Veronica here 
that he has a certain type of bullet made by Germans called Ekluge bullets. And these bullets will supposedly break the barrier to the skin, and the shock will be enough to knock out a victim, but not enough to kill them. Ekluge really means I lie in German, and this stands for a lot of what's going on in Heather's, because everybody is lying to everybody about nearly everything. First of all, Veronica doesn't really believe the Ikluga line, not really. And that'll come up later in the car when she burns her hand as self-punishment for believing it at all. She says that she's such an idiot, but if she was truly deceived, why does she punish herself? It's because she knew. And if she didn't know, then she should have known, especially after Heather's death. She's lying to herself right now. J.D. is, of course, lying to her, and they're both lying to the school as a whole, and the school as a whole is lying to itself and everyone that goes there under the sun because they don't really care about teenage suicide. The truth is, what the lie is hiding is that teenage suicide is a fad. It's a flash in the pan. It's popular, just like everything else in this consumer-obsessed culture. Teenage suicide is a thing because popular people and fashionable people, the in-crowd, the breakfast club, are doing it. It all goes back to that whole argument you had when you were young and your mom caught you riding behind cars on your skateboard like Marty McFly. You said, well, Corey's doing it. And what did your mom say? Well, if Corey went and jumped in a lake, would you go off and do it? And the truth is, deep down, and you know this to be true, that you would. If your friend did something stupid, you'd do it. You'd do it too, and there's no stopping you. And the next guy, who had just as much peer pressure, would only pause to look at the two floating dead bodies, and that would be the only reason why he didn't go jump in the lake after you. Make anything popular, and it rolls, like names. And the way this country works now, shit rolls downhill fast. It used to be the working class determined what is popular. Not anymore. Now the biggest turd in the land is cooked up by the Kardashians who laugh their fucking asses off every time you use their app to buy stupid shit because they can get a kickback. Or Gwyneth Paltrow, whose website, goop.com, is recommending jade stones for women to put in their vaginas, anal beads that are supposedly to exercise muscles, and recommending you to walk on dirt to get antitoxins out of your system. This is insanity, folks. And only once in a while does it not go off as planned. Only once in a while does the world say, fuck Pepsi. Dr. King didn't go to jail for a fucking soft drink. And the world tries to self-correct just a little bit before getting caught up by these people who determine what the next cool thing is. It's not cool. It's not the bomb. Or it is the bomb. And then it's the shit. And then it's the thing, the it, and so on. And we're all wrapped up in this consumer circle and there's no way out, because if there were truly a way out, you'd be out of the job. Everyone would. We're not a country that makes stuff. We're a country that buys stuff. And we have less money than ever before, so the con is on. Parting you from your money is the greatest game, and you know who's winning? George Soros and Roger Ailes. That's who. This tilted angle up and down the tree line is more than just showing us the light that Ram is running to but shows the whole movie is tilting. It's turning upside down. JD is showing his true colors, and Veronica finds out that she is truly 
complicit in these crimes. What she thought was cool was no longer cool, so she rebelled with JD because why? Because she thought it was cool, and now three people are dead, and she doesn't think that's cool at all. So this scene, when she is now guilty of murder, is when she begins to think it's it's way too late, that she is now morally involved in something much bigger than swatch dogs and diet coquettes. I've always wondered why this film was set in Ohio. These cops are pretty normal, not rednecks, although this is a Mayberry-like town. I've always thought this should have been set in the South to show how ignorant people are, especially on the religion angle, but it becomes more powerful to do this in white suburban Ohio than in Alabama. That would make it more alien, I think. People would say, well, of course, what do you expect? It's Alabama. But Ohio, well, that's that's normal. That's too normal. It's too white. It's flyover for sure, but it's way close to home. When's the last time you saw a black guy in this film? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? But if you don't get the Joan Crawford picture, by the way, she was a leading advocate of gay rights when Hollywood was pretty right-wing and nobody stood up for gay people. And no, she wasn't a lesbian. At least I don't think so. The adults, and this includes the cops, are so out of touch in this film. The cops are so out of touch here. As if only gay people drink mineral water. That's just as prejudiced as saying only black people drink orange soda, undercover brother. It's complete bullshit. But they are horribly, horribly normal and jump to the logical conclusion in their minds in these murders just like J.D. said they would. He knew they would be predictable. He, he called it. And here is a connection between Heather's and if not the film, then the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Ellis's fictional killer's name was Bateman, and he looks at authority and other people just like J.D. No one will ever suspect X because people's biases and their prejudices already predict what is going on, who the killer is, and what soap to buy on the way home, what movie to watch, and they are opposites in their personalities, but pretty similar in their motives. They do differ on their reactions a bit. Bateman can't believe people are letting him get away with things at the end of the novel because of their prejudices, but J.D. expects it. He plans for it. It's not accidental. Staying on this scene here and the jump to the conclusion of the gay murder-suicide, let's back up a bit to Heather Chandler's locker. You've seen in the past and you can see again in the future. Heather McNamara raids it, not Heather's parents, which is odd. And she, of course, takes the all-powerful scrunchie before giving Veronica Heather's keys. What these go to, we don't know. Keys to the kingdom, to her future. We never see them. Then maybe to Heather Duke's house. But also in Heather's locker, you'll definitely see in the future, is a book called The Castrated Family by Harold T. Voth. Not making that up. Harold T. Voth. Voth, V-O-T-H, was a believer that there was such things as what he called pathological parenting. And this was the way to raise children that would guarantee they were pretty fucked up when they reached adulthood. Voth was also on board of the National Association for Research and the Therapy of Homosexuality. This was known as NARTH. And NARTH believed that homosexuality was a mental disorder. A mental disorder that needed to be treated and cured. Now I wonder where on the political spectrum Mr. Voth would belong to. Probably to the right, which means Heather Chandler was to the right. 
In fact, I would call her a fascist, and the image of Joan Crawford and her wire hangers oddly enough, so I think we've come full circle, and I'm proud of myself. Watch the scene with the 16-year-old Winona Ryder, and I ask you how it is that she's not considered one of the best actresses today. Look at Veronica cover her ears because she does not want to face the fact of something she already knows, which is that she is guilty. I have to divorce myself from subjects like this when I watch this film because it seems that I grew up with a completely different set of ideas than most people who get to be filmmakers. I didn't grow up in the city, I grew up in the suburbs. Unlike just about everyone I see in a movie theater or hear on the radio. I actually liked the suburbs. Heather's is one step away from Edward Scissorhands' idea of Levittown. All the houses painted in pastels, all the polo shirts in primary colors, all the white picket fences, and all the rest of it. I was not a conformist, yet I grew up in the burbs. So the criticism of the suburbs seemed especially strange to me. I remember someone on C-SPAN saying it was like being from nowhere. I found that insulting. Nevertheless, there are people who see the suburbs as an irreversible evil in America, and we'll see why as we go through and watch Heather's. The next time that you see Veronica's parents, for example, or the inside of Heather's house, compare that to any of Douglas Sirk's movies from the 1950s, like All That Heaven Allows or The Imitation of Life. All those scenes need is just a little more color saturation and it'd be right on. Looks like leggings in the days before leggings. Veronica cracks when she sees Ram's little sister in the funeral and then the priest is, you know, Father Ripper. He's someone that we don't appreciate enough in cinema. Glenn Chaddix was previously in Tim Burton's Beetlejuice with one owner writer. He was born in Alabama. He was a friend of Tennessee Williams, and after some health problems affected his mobility, he fell from his wheelchair in his kitchen and suffered blunt force trauma to the head. He passed away in September 2010. And he really emphasizes the Southern accent as the priest, and it goes a long way with his character. The school boardroom now, with the logo looking like some sort of right-wing party symbol, and the walls now take on a weird extreme art deco look like some kind of fascist architecture designed by Albert Speer, which we'll get to later. The cigarette is a threatening tool, whether it be a phallus or a gun, and the bronze statue of the boy is a minuscule replacement for the bust of Adolf Hitler. The halo is switched from the principal to the guidance counselor because it looks, unfortunately, as if she's the only one who can save the school now. And doesn't that last shot of them look like a staged Douglas Sirk ensemble shot? No? Bueller? Bueller. And this, Jesus, reminds me of Nuremberg. Look at the flags and the banners, and apparently Deadpool is the Westerberg High mascot. And the Prussian with the monocle walks in, hungover, because she drank herself into a stupor the night before. And who is now in control of the fascist state? That's right. The hippies. As evidenced by the tie-dye and the pen that says the new happiness, like the new left and the new Hollywood or the New Deal, that doesn't at first seem to make sense until you realize that everything in your house was thought up by some celebrity in Southern California and marketed by some rich bitch in Fifth Avenue. This looks like another one of those Douglas Circus, excuse me, Douglas Circ setup shots here. I know that sounds like a stretch, but if you watch All That Heaven's Lows or Written on the Wind, you'll 
see some very similar things. There's a small town with small town bitterness, vicious gossip, and the idea that everything you hear is a lie. Ik luga. All that heaven allows is not a satire by any means. It's a melodrama, but it is very verisimilitudinous, and it shares that with Heathers. Heathers is a strong satire with verisimilitude all over the place. Underneath all the neat Westerberg high coziness is an attitude that can kill not just one person, but the entire school. If you didn't catch it, all this feel-good hippie be-alive stuff still alienates people like Martha Dunstock. One of the things that we take for granted since Citizen Kane are these great, deep, focused compositional shots and rooms. You see a lot of ceilings in Kane, which were rare before, but since then have been pretty normal as you tilt your camera up, and a lot of people only tilt it up to show something wicked or sinister going on. Heather's is full of these types of shots. There doesn't have to be a lot of people in the room. When JD and Veronica wake up, Heather Lots of these shots in the cafeteria, the church, lots of deep focus. There's that weird one with JD's dad on the treadmill behind him. That shot we just saw of his dad with all the vector angles behind him there, here. There's a lot of those in The Passion of Joan of Arc, for instance. I'm not sure if it works in terms of creating a style that reinforces the Maison scene, but it does show that Michael Lehman does know what he's talking about. He's paid attention. Heather's is not a cheap film. It's well made. And here you see that JD gets the idea to blow up the school from his dad, who is a contractor who specializes in deconstruction and has access to explosives. And here comes the story of the missing mom, which might be a herring. It might not matter at all, except for his dad is indirectly responsible for it. JD is going to turn up the film's pop song, Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It by Big Fun. He likes the song because it pretty much sums up everything he thinks is wrong in the world. A band like Big Fun is a generic money-generating device made by a corporation with a generic name. They make a song to capitalize on a common problem among teenagers, knowing that teenagers spend most money they have on themselves. To show how this idea is prehistoric in terms of how old it is to the young, the radio looks like a rock from Fred Flintstone's cave. JD shoots it like Elvis did his TV, or so Priscilla Presley told us he did, and now we see JD start to slip. Veronica kisses him because she still loves him, but she is sufficiently spooked by the gunshot to run away. Look at her fight. This looks like a real struggle. She's going to give her speech now, which is close to the Heather's Reindeer Game speech, but let's get back to Glenn Shaddix for a moment, the priest Father Ripper. And I know that Heather's is an anti-religious movie, and casting a gay guy as a priest is a funny ha-ha thing, but I can see through that. The pastor talks about Jesus as a righteous dude, and we all laugh, and we see the cross-pollination with the hippie movement there, and, that, and that's fine. But focus on that a bit. I'm not a religious man by any means, I don't go to church, but I was raised in a church and I did study theology in college, and I like the notion of Jesus as a righteous dude. That sits well with me. Dudeism. Much better than suffering little children come unto me and all the brimstone shit. All language. 
the righteous dude. That, that's another thing that Heathers is about, language. Yes, there's poetic stuff, real life sucks, losers dry, and it'll be very, and all of these things. The linga franca of the school. It'll be totally jerkin'. Teenagers are where a lot of this corporate language starts, and Heathers shows how shallow and meaningless it is, regardless of how funny or off-putting or even if it's a little erotic. It's fitting that Shannon Doherty is in Heathers, since she promoted this kind of language and style in season after season of Beverly Hills 90210. I remember watching Shannon Doherty saying, Why are you pulling my dick? And that forwardness was missing in cinema then. A woman, much less a girl, much less a minor, saying dick or my dick or pulling my dick, even referring to a dick, and being open about sex in that way at a time when sex was being clamped down on because of AIDS. And that's another topic that we could go into in this film. Heather's is very forward for the 80s, not because it addresses teenage language or teenage sex. Tons of other films have done that, but it does merge them. Teenagers are not just having sex, they're talking about sex as a part of their life. And we assume Ferris and Sloane got it on, but we don't see it. We're going to assume a lot of our stuff is happening in the background, but you don't see too much, really. In Heather's, people are openly talking about their dead gay sons and pulling dicks and calling each other fucking sluts. This is pre-Clerks. Besides Heather's, I think the only film that speaks like this is Reservoir Dogs. And then there's a leap to Pulp Fiction clerks, like five-year leap, I think. Language means a lot in Heathers, and as the film starts, you'll get more and more serious about what Veronica's going to do to stop all of this. And you'll see the language start to straighten out. It becomes less slang as it goes on. And what is JD's last line? Fuck you. Not very original. And Veronica's second-to-last line is there's a new sheriff in town, which is not just unoriginal, but a complete cliché. Veronica here is for the first time in lighter colors, so she is a kind of reverse mourner. She's trying to rekindle a relationship that meant something to her that she lost, and unlike everyone else, seemingly... She is finding her humanity while others seem to be intent on losing it. So she's blue now, replacing Heather Duke. I don't want to harp on John Hughes, but we have talked about how this is kind of an anti-Hughes movie. And it's weird because it's like it came from a, a John Hughes movie, like Athena out of Zeus's head or something. Hughes did an interview with someone many years ago about Ferris Bueller and he talked about having that friend in the back seat of the car that third wheel that guy that was like Jesus what are you doing and that was his take on Cameron that Cameron was that guy that jaded I see through this type of dude who was not phased by the money and the house and the Ferrari and all of that I think Heathers is an extension of that attitude JD and Veronica are Camerons they can see through all of this We'd like to think that J.D. is the poor kid, but he's really not. He just doesn't dress in designer clothes like Veronica does. He's the wolf, and she's the wolf in sheep's clothing. There are two sides of Cameron. Now let's blow this shit up, dude, and 
Let's do this, dude. And, well, this is not cool. Only you think you're cool. I'm sure you saw the I shop, therefore I am sticker in Heather's locker next to the castrated family. Of course, I had clicks in elementary school. I saw clicks in middle school, but by the time I got to high school, I saw clicks practically disappear my freshman year. And by the time I was a junior, I'd, I'd say that we were just a bunch of dudes and chicks who hung out with different people. So I was familiar with clicks and I recognized them in Heather's, which I saw when I was a little bit in middle school, but I can't. I can't say they existed that form in my, my later years in high school. I'm sure many people would disagree with that, and that's fine with me. As much as Heather's is a critique of the right with its views on wealth and privilege, it's also a critique of the left. Veronica watches this footage on the healing rally on TV, and she's disgusted with what is arguably what is arguably what we would call the hippie movement. So while all of this unchecked consumerism is going on, what exactly is the left doing about it? What are they doing about the yuppie culture and the runaway capitalism? What are they doing about Reagan? Which is very relevant because, remember, for eight years previous to Heather's, Reagan was president. He had a Democratic Congress all eight years. The left can't get Walter Mondale elected. They can't get Jimmy Carter re-elected or McGovern elected. And no one, despite their political views, is going to look at those politicians and see unqualified resumes. By 1988, the last Democratic nominee who had any hope to do anything was in 1960. So there is a self-criticism going on here. What is the left doing about the real cultural problems going on in America? Well, it appears they have become guidance counselors in high schools. Not even teachers, but guidance counselors. And before you all roll your eyes, I will quote another Christian Slater movie, Pump Up the Volume, by asking if they knew anything about career decisions, would they have ended up as guidance counselors? I taught with several of them in high school, and I didn't know one that was worth a damn. And Veronica's rant here touches on this topic. Consumerism is making suicide look like a cool thing to do, and her parents reply with answers that absolutely miss the mark. They're incapable of seeing the world from her point of view. The only validity to their argument is the underlying current of we have been teenagers before you and we know what it's like to be you. We grew up in the 60s and you can't sell us this crap because we know what it's like to be you. And I had the same speech from my parents and unsurprisingly I gave the same speech to my son just a few months ago. I rolled my eyes and I sighed and I told him, look, I can't believe I'm saying this and I think I promised myself when I became the parent that I would never do this, but holy shit, man, you don't know how easy you got it. I thought I was going to die on the streets of Leningrad when I was your age. You surf the internet pictures of Miley Cyrus's clitoris, for Christ's sakes. I didn't know what a fucking clit was because Playboy wouldn't print a picture of one. And I looked at him as if I was looking at someone else. It was like I was in front of my dad 30 years ago when he was talking to me about how rough his life was growing up with a father that was a war vet, killed Nazis for a living, and was super stern, and I thought all of that was shit. In 30 years, Veronica's going to be in the same place, trying to tell her kids they don't know how good they've got it. This shit is cyclical, man, I'm telling you. Now, Heather's walks in dangerous ground here. Heather Duke is here. She's happy as shit because Martha Dunstock tried to kill herself and failed. And she actually says Martha was trying to imitate the rich and the popular and failed. And that is such shit. She sees Martha as pathetic, which may or may not be true for different reasons, but she misses the whole point. The point is Martha feels compelled to do this because of some specific reasons in her life. And one of those reasons must be 
how society looks at her and treats her, which must be very similar to how Heather is talking about her now. Heather actually suggests that every Nimrod should just kill themselves and the whole world would be a better place. And that attitude is not just elitist or classist, it's absolutely fascist. The next step here is euthanasia. The shocking thing about Heather Duke's attitude, because let's face it, we all say things that we really don't mean and we talk out of our asses, especially on the internet or in podcasts, is she, she listens to the radio when Heather McNamara calls in to try to get someone to talk her out of killing herself. And instead of seeing Heather, who supposedly is a friend of hers, as someone who needs help, Heather Duke immediately jumps into, wow, I can be even more popular at school than Heather McNamara by telling everyone at the school that she called the suicide hotline. And that's just sick. Just sick. And these are the people that Facebook was invented for. These are the people that are on Twitter. So I'm going to posit the radical idea here that since Heather's society has gotten worse, not better. I would leave the room too. Notice the picture of J. Edgar Hoover here, right next to the Confederate flag. Heather McNamara is a cheerleader, and thus is supposed to be a cheery type, and yet here she is so caught up in what people think of her that she's going to try to kill herself. The message here is that consumerism and popularity, or the control of those movements, can lead someone down this path. They can take the cheeriest person in the world and bring them down to this level. Killing yourself in a bathroom that looks like the barracks of where Private Pyle offed himself in Full Metal Jacket. Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? The answer is no. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. And Veronica nails it by saying that becoming a statistic is the least private thing that she can do. So she deflates that argument. She saved her life. John Ross Bowie wrote a book on Heathers. You can buy it on Amazon. He quotes a statistic that says in between 1952 and 1995, the teen suicide rate in the United States tripled. He also cites a study that females are almost twice more likely to consider suicide by males. So Heathers being a film about girls is apropos. Bowie also brings up the criticism of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign in the 80s, and he makes a few valid points here, none of which I'm going to go into because I want you to buy the book and read it. However, I do have a stake in how Big Fun is portrayed here and the message of their song, Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It. It's meant to be catchy and to reinforce the idea that you shouldn't do this. It's also criticized as being too simplistic. It's a wall that doesn't work and so on. And I'm going to take umbrage with that. I'm going to back up to Nancy Reagan, and I'm going to tell you a small piece of truth from my life that you may not want to hear, and that's that Nancy Reagan might have saved my life. I was growing up in the 80s. I was in elementary school, and the first lady says, if someone offers you any drugs, what do you say? Just say no. It's 1982. I'm what, seven, eight? What do I know about drugs? I have parents who are much older than than, than God, and and. They're older than other parents, and they don't really even want to discuss it. I go to a school that's run by a bunch of evangelical Christians who don't want to teach me about sex or drugs or anything else. Where am I going to get my information? From my friends, of course, and Nancy Reagan, who's on TV saying, just say no. I never touched drugs in elementary school, and I never touched them in middle school, which is particularly surprising since my middle school was riddled with drugs, and I know it. 
I had two dealers at my bus stop. One guy sold weed and the other guy sold LSD. And these were eighth graders. We had drugs in high school and I decided, nope, I'll take my risks with tobacco and alcohol. Thank you very much. And if you can debate that all you want, I don't care. But then I went to school in the 90s and I was a history major in college. And I remember all this criticism in the Clinton years about Reagan and Nancy Reagan and how simplistic the message was and how it was naive and the wrong thing to tell kids. And I looked at a lot of my friends from high school and college and looked at how fucked up their lives were from years of abuse and trying to find out that maybe that wasn't the best way they should have gone about things. I mean dropouts or jobless or complete waste of space. And yes, we all had differences in our lives and our homes, but not that many. And they didn't make it. And I did. And why was that? Because I listened to Nancy Reagan's maybe. So I, I'd like someone to explain to me what harm came to my life because I paid attention to Just Say No. And what harm came to those kids my age who said, fuck Nancy Reagan, pass me a bowl. So yeah, it's a catchphrase. So is, yes, we can. What is the alternative? Sitting down, your seven-year-old, and having a serious conversation about the differences of drugs and how there are moral issues involved in everything that we do. And let's break this down to what is socially acceptable and what is absolutely legal and that is why it might not make sense. And Jesus Christ, isn't that a whole lot more nuanced of a conversation to have with a third grader? I've got an idea. Dylan, just say no to drugs, okay? When you get older, reassess that statement, just like you do everything else. Got it? Thanks. Can I get back to Voltron now? So I got a problem with how teenage suicide don't do it is ridiculed in this film. It looks ridiculous. It looks pumped up. I know that it's sold as a statement. It looks like Joe seen the Pussycats. That's fine, but I think that it sends the right message that some people need to hear, even if it's simplistic. I think the lyrics could be better, but hey, I didn't write it. But I could also say the same about a Doris Day song. We had a lot of catching up to do after that rant, which would surely find its way to Rick Mercer's monologue. We have a lot of catching up to do. First, Veronica asked Heather in that previous scene, why are you such a mega bitch? And she replies, because you can be. And that statement is so telling. That goes back to the Stanford experiment when they took student volunteers and recreated a prison to see how people would react. And it wound up being a huge fiasco. And it repeats what Clinton said when they asked him, why did he have this affair with Monica Lewinsky? And he said, and why did he lie about it to a federal judge? And why did he lie about it to the American people? And, and what was his answer? His answer was, because I could. And we're all raised in this post-Watergate world where Richard Nixon is the end-all, be-all source of evil in a world, lower approval ratings than Hitler, and look at cops suspiciously, and we tell ourselves, wow, give a normal guy a badge and it just fucks him up. We quote Socrates, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But look at Stanford and tell me how many conservative Republicans go to that college or participated in that experiment. And we're not going to call Clinton a conservative, are we? So this badge problem, this authority problem, this cop problem we've been having lately, it's not just a problem on the right. It's a problem on the left, too. It's an American problem. If you want to balance one out, say Hitler, then let's talk about Stalin. And when you bring up everyone in between, you have to acknowledge that authority is a huge problem everywhere. And it starts really with people like Heather Duke. 
Now JD shows up and he talks about what? Going to a movie, miniature golf, consumerism. And when Veronica leaves him, you hear a Sergi, you know, Leone score-like music when he goes over JD and tries to win her back, like some scene from Once Upon a Time in the West. You're going to see Veronica in a fetal position twice. And that's going to be, when she wakes up, it's going to be the end of the transition that started when she was in front of the butterfly. She even calls JD to his face, so fucking psycho. And that is what JD is. He's a fucking psycho. And here is where Heathers merges with a real historical event, the Columbine Massacre, and a film interpretation of Columbine, which is the brilliant film Elephant by Gus Van Zandt. Elephant is a lot of things in Heather's that is played straight, and one of them is the psychology of the killers. They're not just a lot like Leibold and Harris, the Columbine killers, but they're also a lot like J.D. Harris wrote in his diary that he was aware of all the media that would follow their murder spree and all the books that would be written and all the analysis and all the talking heads, and they would live forever if they killed enough people, preferably kids. J.D. is headed in this direction but is hoping with some conviction that he can get around the suicide himself by killing people and making it look like suicide. Why is he doing this? doesn't really matter, although we've already talked about how he identifies the culture as sick and the same everywhere he goes. Matt Stone from South Park talked about being from the same area as the Columbine Killers and said it was horribly, horribly normal. When you're different, All you want to do is feel accepted. And how can you feel accepted if everyone makes you feel different? And you're not going to change. Because fuck that. And that's Veronica. She adjusts. JD doesn't adjust. He can't. He has no empathy. And that is where Heather's departs from collusion. I've read some film reviews where critics decry the film because they think it encourages either suicide or murder. You see the upside-down world here and get turned around. And I can't believe they got that interpretation of this film. This film is anti-suicide and anti-murder. J.D. might not show up as James Dean, but he leaves looking like Dylan Cleveland. He is not cool. He is not someone you want to emulate, despite the Jack Nicholson impression. So the film goes where Michael Lehman wanted it to go, and it does what he wants it to do. The only string left untied is Veronica not being held accountable for the murder of Heather and Ram. Layman stated he received calls from journalists after Columbine who wanted to comment. And how fucked up is that? Because Michael Layman had nothing to do with Columbine or any other school shooting for that matter. Even if some kid decided to emulate JD and blow up a school, it would only prove that he missed the entire fucking point of Heather's, which is the culture is controlling you. It's turning you into an unempathetic killer like JD, like Heather Duke. So if you go down that road and you blame Heather's, then what you're really admitting is that you were too fucking stupid to understand what this film is about in the first place. And I don't know if you could have missed the meaning of Heathers when you hear Father Ripper wax intellectual about the meaning of Eskimo, like journalists tore apart the lives of Cleveland and Harris to find meaning in what they did, and the mourners in the church are now theatergoers with 3D glasses because there's nothing in the world that's more fictitious than trying to find spiritual answers in a church, and the church is now a version of hell, and who's there? Heather Chandler, of course. And she's pissed off that everyone is misinterpreting her life after her death, which takes us all the way back to the Eskimo. The dream sequence is over, the fetal position is repeated, and what does Veronica do? 
write in her journal, hoping it will help her find a way out, and the camera suggests she's being watched by some higher power. She even feels like she's being watched. As she sits down, she looks up to see if anyone is there. And the diary now becomes a full-on confession. And she spills everything into it that others would probably tell Father Ripper. And in being honest in her diary, we see the camera come down and witness her honesty. So the spiritual power, whatever it is, the father, the son, or the righteous dude, is now with her. And she's going to need it because JD is coming to kill her. And she needs a way out. And what is the way out? Well, of course, it's faking her death. The only way to stay alive, as it happens, a trick used a lot in cinema. In fact, I used it in Humbucker Pickup, which you can find on Amazon.com. It's a Machiavellian move, but hey, the ends justify the means, right? While JD rants here, I want to talk about names for a bit. You could write a paper on what this film does with names. To start with, one of the producers started the project by complaining with, do they all have to be named Heather? Clearly, he never went to high school in the 80s. The name Heather peaked in use during births in the early to mid-70s. So if you went to high school in the late 80s, early 90s, you saw an increase in the name of the use or the use of the name Heather. This is a real phenomenon. I used to teach school around the turn of the millennium, and I swear to Christ, about one out of every five girls was named some spelling variation of the word crystal. Secondly, we all know from online bullying today how easy it is to be a dick when no one knows you. So which Heather is doing what? It no longer matters when you are referred to as a group. So you get away with a lot more bullshit. Kind of like those Nazi sons of bitches. There's also the Freakonomics connection. I know that it's controversial for different reasons, but if you get a chance, read Freakonomics by Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt and listen to their podcast, which by the way is fantastic. And after you read the book, watch the documentary Freakonomics, which is on Netflix for a while. The documentary was divided into about six different sections, and the producers of the film had a fantastic idea, which was to give each section to a different director, since the topics in Freakonomics are so different. The section on names was given to none other than a man with the strangest name himself, Morgan Spurlock, the director of Super Size Me and the greatest movie ever sold. The Freakonomics idea behind names was names started in the upper strata of rich society, at least in America, and they worked their way down the socioeconomic ladder. So, for instance, Brittany and Ashley were huge on Fifth Avenue in the 80s and now are relegated to the trailer parks of America. Heather's was the same. It was just a plant in Scotland until the early 20th century, and by the 80s it became a middle-class name you know it as. Now they give it to the girls in the orphanage. By the way, the scale only moves one way. So, for example, if you are poor and you name your child Latrina, or even John, it won't matter. The name will never move up the socioeconomic ladder. They only move down. The Heather's last names are just as important. This is America, so there's no royalty. But there is near royalty. Chandler is kind of like a chancellor. Duke, which is close to the king, but not quite there. Normally the brother, the Duke of York and McNamara, good enough to be Secretary of Defense, but never president. So to this day, there's never been a Mick, a Mac, or an O something as president. 
and you can end your name as son or someone as a president, but you can't start it with where you are from. Definitely not a Fitz or Fritz. Veronica Sawyer is, of course, outside the norm. Veronica has never been widely popular, and Sawyer isn't either, although we associate it with Mark Twain, who wrote a lot of books about people who didn't necessarily lead sinless lives, but they made the right decision when it came down to life or death. Jason Dean is obviously back to Rebel Without a Cause connection, reinforcing the Veronica as a Natalie theme. The names also reinforce the misogyny theme in Heather's, and this is important because you see the misogyny not just from the men, but the harshest misogyny is in between the women. Heather calls Veronica a slut. Veronica calls Heather a bitch. Heather Duke asks why Veronica was pulling her dick. All of these masculine references among girls who run the school as if they were trying to assert that they, the women, are really in control of the men, despite being forced to give head or get raped in a cow patty of shit. The shoulder pads just reinforce all of this, of course, and so does Veronica's monocle, a very Prussian image of manliness. I've mentioned it before, but I want to quote straight out of Bowie's book, page 82, and I, I hate quoting, but he nails this so succinctly, and I, I can't replicate it without doing it dishonor, so please bear with me. Quote, The monocle that Veronica wears gives us a telling peek into her character and her melee with gender identity. A single corrective lens hanging from a chain was traditionally worn by men in the 1800s. This and her blue bathrobe give her a masculine quality that grows stronger once she stops journaling. The monocle also corrects the vision of only one eye. It, like all of Heather's, doesn't give you the whole picture. Unquote. I haven't really spent enough time on Daniel Waters, the screenwriter for Heather's, but if you look him up on IMDb, you can see some truly wonderful original work, which I'm going to ignore since we are tumbling fast towards the credits. He initially wrote a mammoth 196-page draft of Heather's, most of which was not used. To give you a ballpark idea, a screenplay should be about one page per minute, and comedies, which this is, is supposed to be about 90 minutes, so this means the draft was about an hour and 40 minutes longer than it was typical at the time. The length was one thing, but the characters and the plot were also different. Waters initially wrote Veronica as, quote, a Travis Bickle in a Molly Ringwald package, unquote, if you can believe it, and was much more complicit in the murders, much like Carol Fugate, Starkweather's girlfriend. Waters also calls Veronica the Albert Spare of the school, She's responsible for the aesthetic of the place, but has no actual role in any of the killings. She does kill Ramp. She does it in a gray area of kind of not knowing JD is bullshitting her with the Ick Luga bullet story. The draft included an alternative ending in which Veronica kills JD, but lets the bomb go off because of the classism she still sees in the school while the prom dance is going on. Think of the end of Carrie with no telekinesis and a bunch of C4. Believe it or not, this was too much for a bunch of Hollywood executives. A movie about teenage suicide in which the lead character commits suicide while murdering most of her classmates is not what they wanted to do or be accused of in this age of 
let's blame Hollywood for our social problems. They simply did not want any copycats doing what they saw in Heathers. This is very controversial, so let's deconstruct this. If someone goes to see Heathers and sees Winona Ryder kill her boyfriend, set off a bomb, kill all of her classmates, and then says to herself or to himself, hey, that looks like a good idea, then that particular person is fucked in the head to begin with, and you won't ever convince me that it was watching this movie that convinced them to kill someone. I play a lot of Call of Duty. I've never actually shot anyone, and I'm perfectly fine with that. I have absolutely no desire to do it. But people being as they are, which are people who avoid responsibility for their actions and think about this because how many mass murderers kill themselves, right? A lot, to avoid the consequences. The producers were not eager to bring this on despite the topic film. On the flip side, I find this rather hysterical because this is a new line movie which produced the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. So slicing up a bunch of people is fine, but for God's sakes, you can't blow up a bunch of people. That's, that's taken a bit too far. Meanwhile, the school gym looks like that warped vision of high school that Nirvana made famous in their Smells Like Teen Spirit video that everyone has seen a million times. Load up all guns, bring your friends. It's fun to lose. And to pretend. Another alternate ending that was discussed, uh, and it was pitched but never wrote or shot, was a blind corner after prom blows up. Veronica asks Martha Dunstock if she wants to go watch some videos and hangs out. And Martha pulls out a gun and says, fuck you, Heather, and shoots her dead. Veronica spits up blood and she says, my name's not Heather. And Martha stands up to declare she can walk like the ending of Dr. Strangelove. And where do you want to go with that? I don't care. I'm certainly not going there. This does remind me of the ending, spoilers, of The War of the Roses. JD still genuinely loves Veronica, but she's over him. He's so 87. There's a lot of other clues flying around the film that are pretty neat. Heather Chandler had a sticker in her locker that says, I shop, therefore I am. Waters went on to write Mean Girl, starring Lindsay Lohan, which made a shitload of money. J.D. shares initials with the author J.D. Salinger, who wrote The Catcher in the Rye, which was the script, but replaced with Moby Dick because Salinger wouldn't give permission and Really, who can blame him after his book was found on Hinckley and Chapman and Berkowitz and whatever. Winona Ryder's legs were supposedly a body double, which just crushes me. And the movie flopped at the box office despite being very well acclaimed, but only just lately. Like a lot of younger films made in the 80s, most people missed the point. Both Ebert and Kale published mixed reactions and struggle to find reasons to like it. But it does have a 94 on critics and an 84 on audience on Rotten Tomatoes, and it lived on HBO and DVD, so I'm sure it made its money back, just like it warmed up on its critical response. So here Veronica redeems herself not by blowing JD or blowing away JD, but blowing away JD's middle finger, the fuck you finger, which is the strongest emasculation in the film, 
And this is fitting because after all, you might find a Carol Fugate and Veronica or two, but how many women are perpetrating school shootings? That's why we pay attention to the masculine language in Heather's, such as when Heather Chandler says, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. I want to believe that JD has a change of heart and deliberately stops the timer here, but I just can't. I think that he disarmed it by accident. I wonder how many takes that took and how long Winona Ryder had to hold up this gun to the camera. This is before The Crow, so it's probably not a replicant. And if I may bring this comedy to a serious level, for which I think that it was meant, I'll end on some very real notes. Winona Ryder's agent apparently begged her not to take this role. He claimed a black comedy might end her career, but Ryder was determined to be in Heather's because she knew a girl in high school who had killed herself. And Ryder personally witnessed some of these themes in Heather's happen in real life. And not to be a bummer, but to emphasize that this is an important movie with a relevant topic, it should be pointed out, but will be no surprise to Heather's fans, that the fine actor who played Peter, Jeremy Applegate, shot himself in March of 2000. So whatever you take away from Heather's, I hope that you will take away the seriousness of the problem of suicide as a real menace to our society. And here, J.D. and Veronica are going to pass through the pearly gates. And of course, only one of them can stay. J.D. is wounded, and he's not going to make it. So, like a lot of wounded serial killers, he decides to take his own life and not be shot down like a dog, which he is. They're framed here in two squares facing off, which they've spent the film rejecting. They're not squares. And you can see, even in this last shot, JD hasn't given up on his love for her, even though that he's accepted that she does not love him and will not be with him. And though this does not change the way he feels about her, it does change the way he feels about life. In the end, he does not want to live in a life separated from her, whether that is a jail cell or living a life in which she will never let him buy her a Slurpee. I find this curious, this love aspect. It's like J.D. discovered way too late. Right now, when he's definitely lost her, what he really wanted in the first place, it was her. And if he had just dropped all this craziness around the murder-suicides, then he could have had that which had meant most to him. Not taking out the rich bitches, but keeping Veronica, which could have been the title of this movie. You can see how flippant she is about watching him die, putting the cigarette in so it'll light when it explodes. Like All of this is part of her detachment from him, holding her broken arm. It'll be just another movie to watch, and you can tell by the look on his face that he's disappointed, that she's not upset that he's taking his own life. 
But also in the end, we knew he was incapable of seeing that way because seeing life that way because someone who has no empathy cannot see love the same way people with empathy do. And that is why JD dies at the end of Heathers. And Veronica, the complicit girlfriend, does not. It's not that she had redeemed herself in any way in stopping the school bombing. It's just that she recognized that JD and the Heathers all had the same problem. Empathy. They were just as psychotic as each other. And now, the red scrunchie passes on. When I grew up, I fell in love with Winona Ryder, and I wanted to be JD, but I never ever wanted to kill anybody, and I never felt like blowing up my school despite seeing some of what JD and Veronica identified as severe problems in the social structure of teenage communities. I never thought about it in those terms, only in a vague, this is fucked up and that is fucked up kind of way. I didn't have a normal childhood, maybe that saved me from becoming someone like JD, but I also saw and knew people like Heather and deliberately steered clear. I think I am cognizant of how my empathy makes me a person, and I think it helps when we, as a society, can share that empathy with others. Thanks for hanging out with me today while we watched Heathers. I hope you found this interesting, whether you watched the commentary on in your home or just listened in the car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com or you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail and Joshua Cunningham. You can reach them both on SoundCloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at ThatDylanDavis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis. The next time, we'll meet on the Texas Locomotive.